because I was never like you know that's why I was a poet because there's um, uh, it's not like that in English word like whatever you guys have in a spoken word is complete trash but in Russia and in the Russian speaking countries poetry is a big deal right okay so and it has and the poets are taken seriously that's how I could have fans and concerts and a tour and books and stuff but it sounds like you had the you said you grew up fast Doing these concerts, you you had to have been younger than eighteen if you had yes. moved here when you were eighteen. So yes, when, how old were you when you started doing these events? I would say you know, and thank thanks to the internet, everything I have in my life right now, career wise, exposure wise, and blah blah blah, is all owed to the internet era. And uh, that was the same thing with my poetry career. It's just like. I wrote something when I was maybe 11 or 12 and I decided for some reason to publish it online and it went viral overnight. And I was like, well, I guess I'm a poet now. (laughs) So whatever I had before, I just started publishing and there's like this uh, Russian Facebook site, which is Vkontakte and VK.com, I guess, or uh, .ru. And this is where I had, this is where I had my public page. Uh, which was uh, called Crazy Heart, uh, as um, from from the line of uh, famous uh, Russian poet uh, Sergei Yesenin, who uh, who had had a poem. I would not even try to translate it, but basically had Crazy Heart in it, <laughs> Crazy Heart of a poet. Yeah. Uh, so this is how I started publishing some of the pieces I've been writing for my own for myself. And uh, it gained some attention. And then I would say the concert, I started somewhere around 14 years old, 14, 15. Because um, when I was 15, I think this, uh, because it became popular on the internet, there was this guy who is a front man of this popular rock band, like Maroon 5 in Uzbekistan. And they are kind of popular in all of the stands in Russia and Ukraine and Uzbekistan, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he stumbled upon my poem on the, on the internet. And he found my contact. He wrote the music for the poem. He sent it to me like as a voice recording on WhatsApp. And it became a song. And oh, wow. a hit song. You know, I would never imagine that it would be a song. I never wrote that poem as anything to put to be put on music but from that point on i discovered the stage and the power of the stage and the power of a live performance and started just going to this uh concerts and meetings of young poets of moscow and russia and just like an open mic at first and then i started being invited to like headline or have a tour by my by myself that's how it started i was 14 15 i would say yeah wow so that sounds like a very n- non-standard western upbringing Did that, oh, so, absolutely not <laughs> yeah so uh ha- has that uh influenced your art or uh has that do you think that's had the major a major impact on how you became creative or in the I creative would, field i would say so yeah it is kind of unusual but i think if, if you ask any in Hollywood, especially if you ask any child of an actor uh, or in the film or pe- kids who were brought up in the film family, producers or actors or or directors, they would have the same experience, I would say, because I've been exposed to all these greats in the creative industry, but more so journalism and uh, activism through my grandmother, who is a journalist and um, peace activist or whatever, just a good hard person. And um, I was always exposed to, to creativity in a way. And I was always encouraged to express myself. And uh, my dad is a celebrity, but in sports, and his dad is a legend in soccer. So my dad's crowd would be more like super celebrities, like actors and theater people and like singers and stuff. So I would always be exposed to them as well. And it's just like all these creative people doing cool stuff. And it's a second nature. You just grew up in this. You, You just 
soak it in, I would say, you know, and my dad is a very creative person himself. He has a journalist degree and writes as well. He, uh, he's a good interviewer. So, um, I was, it was always there. I, I just had to reach out and kind of explore it. That's, that's why I would say my path is not a path of a person who loves films. If you would ask me six years ago, what do you think, think about filmmaking? Or what is like, do you like cinema? And I'll be like, cinema, let's talk about literature. Right. Yeah. So yeah. because I like my my grandma had to quit her job at the at television at the news to raise my dad and my my uncle, and she went to work at the library downstairs in our apartment building. So I grew up surrounded by books, and any book I wanted, I could read. Right. There was no restrictions. Nothing. That's why I, I read uh, a lot of adult books. <laughs> when I was oh, a kid, okay. you know, yeah. not, not adult. I mean, uh, like I know what you mean. <laughs> me too. Let me tell you, <laughs> like you know, uh, just something that kids are not exposed to, like on, yeah. on, on Anna Karenina or Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, or no Bungakov, Harry Potter is what you're you saying. Know? Oh no, I love Harry <laughs> Potter. Okay. I I'm uh, definitely that kid of that generation who grew up with the, every book would be like every birthday. Yeah. I definitely remember that, Uh, but, but plus to that were like more, more like crazy, sad, existential stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hey, that's the best stuff, right? So then is your family still mostly located in Russia or Uzbekistan? Yes. Everyone's there. I'm the only one here. So do you visit them or when's the last time you've seen them? Oh, I've been there in 2014. Uh, um, the last and uh, I went there for Thanksgiving and got stuck for a week because of my visa and it was the worst time of my life I wrote the best poem of my life I would think but never again <laughs> you know it's yeah. just the whole thing the immigrant thing the Russia propaganda thing and uh it's really tough it's tough it's just not easy to to navigate, especially being exposed to like a more Western perspective on all the things that are happening there. Sometimes it's just excruciating to talk to people who are there, right there in that environment, you know, because it affects them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're on the front lines, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I wanted to ask is like, so to go back to that, like growing up, like surrounded by books, like was that like an escape for you, like, because it sounds, I know it's probably not ha- easy growing up, especially like you were mentioning, like being a woman, you know, like girls do not have it easy, mm. as easy. So was uh, reading and writing, was that like an escape for you growing up? Well, I can tell you this. So um, my situation is that uh, I grew up raised by boomers, basically my grandmother's generation. And um be, being that my dad is a, is a big deal and whatever, a celebrity, he was always out and not available as a parent mostly. We're very close and he's my close friend and uh, my idol, my coach and everything for me. But there was no uh, parenting involved in our relationship, especially when I was growing up. It was more like, let's go to a, to a party or let's, let's, you know, read a book together or do some go to theater together. It's more like entertaining. And I grew up without a mom because my parents got divorced when I was two. And, uh, so that also adds to the growing up fast is that like everyone around you thinks that they can replace your mother because you don't have one. So everyone offers their opinion. And as a kid, you have to navigate all of that and kind of please everyone. So I re- uh, learned really fast how to deal with people and manipulate them uh, <laughs> to, hey, into, to, into doing whatever I wanted or not wanted, but like needed them to be at the moment. I wouldn't say that books were my escape. Even the, the woman who uh, was raising me before I moved to Moscow to live with my grandma, 
her uh, her sister, my dad's aunt, uh, who abused me physically and mentally, but um, that made me a much better person, I think, much stronger one. Even she always said to me, for some reason, that one day I will be a great writer or a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. And when when I am, I will like buy her a house or whatever she would say, like whatever she <laughs> said after that. You know, one day when you become a great writer, wow. you will buy me a house or something hey, like this. Hedging so your bets. <laughs> it was it was kind of put into my mind from a very young age that this is what I am and this is what I should be. So the books would only go as a natural thing with it, because if you want to be a writer, you got to read books. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was not like I had to escape the abusive, the environment and like this tough childhood I had or the no childhood that I did, like that I was robbed of. No, it was never that. It was more like, let's see what other artists or other writers come up with so I can be better. So that sounds like a very mature outlook from even then. Because <laughs> I mean, like talking to, it, uh, I mean, at least Westerners, and I can maybe speak for Stephen and I, it's just like, man, we just escaped in everything. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, we don't want to deal with the world. So we go and play video games or we watch movies. Like, that's that's very uh, common, I would say, for us, us and our generation. And I feel that that is okay. That that. Art could be the escape as well. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone treats it differently. That's why it still exists, you know, because everyone can approach it in their own way for their own reasons. Uh, escape is definitely, I agree with you, uh, one of the main reasons uh, it exists and is so popular uh, in the Western world. But for me personally, as a creator, art exists to heal the wounds I have. Yeah. Oh, that's or beautiful. As creators, I would say. So then why did you pick poetry? Why was that the one that you gravitate towards? That's an interesting question. I never thought about it like logically. It just came naturally. I would I would think that whatever was inside me emotionally uh-huh. just spoke in rhymes. Okay. Okay, awesome. And then I know you you you're into uh music, right? Don't you have like some training in piano and whatnot? No, I do not myself. Unfortunately, okay. when I was a kid, I made a big mistake and I chose tennis instead of piano oh. lessons, and I regret hey, it to I this day. Tennis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I chose the tennis and nice. um and that's why I'm always fascinated with piano and musicians, piano in particular, but musicians at large, uh, because I personally think that music is the highest form of art because it's immortal. So then why not poetry if poetry is so similar to like lyrics in a song? Why why poetry? Why not poetry? I mean, to speak in the immortal exactly. notion of yes, art. that's 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 very true. Yes, yes, and also the some some of the rules of rhyme and rhythm apply as well yeah. as in music, and also you can go on stage and perform it just like with music. So I guess there is a correlation. I never thought about it uh, yeah. this way, but it makes sense. Yeah, because I see such a strong correlation between music and poetry. And, uh, you know, being out in New York, have you ever seen any of those uh, beat poems, those beat poets where they go mm-hmm. up on stage and they kind of have like a rap um, approach? It's basically modern poetry right now. Mm-hmm. Have you mm-hmm. ha- have you seen that and whatnot? Unfortunately, I've been only to open mics and it was terrible and I walked out. <laughs> okay. But I can imagine, like, uh, once when I was just, when I just moved here, uh, I ended up on this um, um, Love Something Supreme by uh-huh. Lin-Manuel Miranda and oh. his crew. Uh-huh. And I was fortunate enough to be there, and that's what they did. And that was the thing that I really loved. Uh, the audience will tell them one word, a noun, usually. Uh-huh. And they will just rhyme and improvise on that. And I yeah. would never forget, like, he came up with some... I gave him the, the word sunrise. 
And he came up with this beautiful, beautiful poem, I would say, yes. He just read it as a rap, but it was definitely a poem. It was very poetic and beautiful. So that thing I really like. So I guess that is like beat rap, beat poetry. So within your poetry, are you able to come up with prose that easily within? Because I mean, I see some like Lin-Manuel where you're saying he just comes up with a word and boom, he's off to a full poem. Is it Mm -hmm. like that for you when you write it? Or is there a lot more editing and a lot more rumination on what the next word is? Well, it depends from piece to piece. You know, every piece had some kind of a backstory for me. Uh, When I was writing it, it could be just me walking on the street in Moscow when it's raining or snowing and it's just like the words come up in your mind and the rhythm comes up and the city helps with the the sound of it all and you just put it on on the page as a texture. And sometimes it's a heartbreak and you just want to really express what you feel in the words. So there's definitely a lot of editing into that to find the right words. So it just goes piece piece by piece. I would say some of my some of my writing is there raw as it was in my uh, iPhone notes as I wrote it, and some of it has been rewritten and rewritten, and I would come back to it because it would just not be ideal or perfect. So it go it would go case by case. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. So in that uh, regard, who are some of your inspirations uh, in that regard for our our books or writers, poets? Well, I would not be able to tell you anything in the Western world because I don't like it that much. I'm saying I'm eats. But (laughs) it would be, and I was always compared to him. Uh, His name is Vladimir Mayakovsky. He was the poet who, in my opinion, was a genius in his own way because he definitely created his own language and his poetry was very rhythmical and very masculine and uh, I was always compared to him so he was a big influence to me and uh, of course Marina Tsvetaeva who is uh, also a genius uh, and um, but much more feminine and much more emotional like a raw animal in a raw animal kind of way. So she would definitely be an inspiration. I would never write like her, but I can definitely appreciate what she's done. And Joseph Brodsky, who is more known, I would say, in the Western world as he lived in New York and and also created here as well and wrote and and taught, his his poetry is very intellectual and his uh, analysis of... uh, of um, literature and and poetry is just fascinating and I'm still a student of his work you know so that would be my my three my kind of a triangle okay and how about for filmmaking Uh, do you have any idols or writers screenwriters that you that you gravitate towards well as I'm sitting here right now on my desk uh, I have this little pantheon of frames you know how other people have their family or their kids or their dogs in the in the photos on their walls. Yeah, uh, I have Spielberg, I have <laughs> Bigelow, Kubrick, Campion, Hitchcock, Tarkovsky, and Polanski. And I've been told to take Polanski off. I'm thinking who to put instead of him. Yeah, so. I mean, I wouldn't say that I have some kind of an idol or someone I want to be like. There's definitely yeah. some contemporary screenwriters and directors I would really strive to be like or have a career like them. I would say definitely uh, my soulmate or whatever the the variation of a soulmate in filmmaking is Darren Aronofsky. Oh, awesome. Okay. Just because I've been compared to him a lot, especially with Esther's Choice film. Uh, oh, okay. And... Um, you know, I That's just, exciting. He's one of I my just favorites like, as well. oh, really, I just like what he does. And I, I, I get him. I, I get what he's trying to do and he's trying to say. The Fountain's and my favorite movie. Yes, I like that movie, too. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm always trying yeah. to get Steven to watch it. I don't know. He, yeah, I oh, haven't seen it yet. Oh, you should. You should. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've been meaning to. It's just 
Aronofsky films take me a little bit to get around to because, like, I still haven't seen Mother, for instance. Oh, you must. Yeah, I've, yeah I've heard people good. like that a lot. So, you know, you mentioned you have Polanski on your wall. So let me ask you this, you know, the more controversial stuff. What do you think about uh-huh. the notion of, or especially right now in, in American culture where you really can't like certain people? For instance, can't like Polanski anymore because of his past, right? Can't like Woody, Woody Allen, Allen anymore because of his past. So yes. how do you feel about that? Because, I mean, there is a lot to learn from them uh, within just the context of what they've created, you know? Well, here's the deal. There's a person and there's an artist. And I think we should separate them. Yeah. And one should not be responsible for another. Yeah. It might be very um, unpopular opinion, especially coming from a female filmmaker. But that's what I think. And just because the film art is so popular or is made for masses, it doesn't mean that the artists who operate in this art in any way different from any other crazy artists in all other mediums, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, like, we're not putting, I don't know, Michelangelo or Da Vinci's methods under a microscope, right? Yeah. Uh, or maybe we're just way. so removed from them. Or like Polanski's still walking yes. around. Polanski's That's still making films, true. right? Like, yes. I feel like, but being a female filmmaker, do you feel like you get more vitriol or hate because you have those kind of opinions? It feels like you should just snap to into line how do you feel about that where it's like you have to be an ally or you're like an enemy? Or you're like there's no, it, right? there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no gray. Well, the thing about that is uh, whenever there is a trend or whenever someone is about to get canceled, I get uneasy because I'm in the same boat. I'm not necessarily a Twitter audience who has nothing to do with the art or the industry. I'm in the industry. So it always gets me thinking about whatever I did in my life, you know, and I'm sure you can just dig up a lot of dirt on me too, giving the internet and whatever, uh, the Twitter and uh, Russia and politics and stuff. I could have said something I don't even remember, or it's always scary, not as a female filmmaker, it's just a creative person because like how far can we go with a censorship? Yeah, the uh, line's always how, moving, right? Yeah, it's always moving and I can never catch up. You know, what's not good anymore now and what's, what's not going to be good tomorrow? And I definitely feel for, for victims or people who were wronged by whoever by whichever artist is right now in the, on the hot plate but i'm not sure what is the best approach to judge those those people i mean yes if they really committed the crime they should probably go to jail but it doesn't mean that whatever they did created or contributed to the world is now all of a sudden a trash made by a rapist So this may even be sparking even more controversy, but do you think there's any kind of redemption or could there be redemption for those people? Say, uh, maybe not even not a Weinstein, because that's, I mean, for decades of horribleness. But say, who's (laughs) someone that was recently canceled? Yeah, Polanski. Is there a way for, is there a path to redemption for canceling, cancellation in your eyes? I'm not sure he can be saved at the moment, you know, and what he did or is alleged to to have done doesn't look good personally or for, for any per- like just like, you know, I would not be friends with him. I, 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 I don't think. <laughs> yeah. But again, there's there should be, I believe. There should be a separation between a person and their doings and their art. But the and thing is, like, it's almost not... controversial to say to say that that there's a separation. Like, isn't that an issue in just its, in itself? If it, there is a separation, uh, I think the issue is is when 
the person is an artist, an acclaimed one, an Oscar winner or award-winning filmmaker, writer, director, musician, whatever. And because of that, we do not judge them. You know, because they're so big, they're going to walk away free. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is wrong. Of, well, of course, no one as should be. People, as people, they should answer for whatever bad things they did and be judged for that. And it should be fair judgment. They should pay for it. Right. But yeah. when you say that, oh, you are a child molester, your film is worth nothing now. That's wrong, especially in film, because it's such a collaborative thing. You have actors, you have a DP, you have the whole crew who worked on it. You have a composer. So because they were involved in your amazing project, this this project is not good anymore. It has to be taken out from the Hall of Fame to get the Oscar, take the, I don't know, Berlinale off. You know, it, it, it never happened. Canceled. That's wrong. So I would be curious to see how you feel about the Kevin Spacey being removed from, what was that, the All the Money in the World movie? Yeah. So how do you feel about that, where they literally just go in and digitally replace, I think, Chris D'Elia? Same <laughs> similar thing just happened to him. I can never say yeah, his last name. Chris D'Elia or D'Elia. So like, how well, do you feel that, about that? I wasn't following it that much. But the thing is that I think it was just the move that the studio and the filmmaker had to make because it was so hyped up and they were forced by by the media to do so. I'm sure no one really liked the idea, but they had to do it because of so much societal pressure and everyone speaking. Yeah. You yeah, know, but how do you about feel that. about it? Do you think it's I okay? It's okay to take him out? I don't think so. He was a part of the movie. He should be there. He was casted for some reason. He was playing the role. He was probably brilliant in it. You know? Yeah. He so should then, be there. So then let's say that happened to one of your films. What would mm-hmm. you want to do? I mean, granted, you're going to be, you might be pressured to do something else, but as a director, filmmaker, writer, producer, how would you want to handle that if you had an actor like that? Well, the thing is that. Right now, I'm at the stage when I control everything because I finance my own stuff. Yeah. So if if I would be in complete control, creative control of a, of a movie that is coming out, and for some reason there's a big scandal with my lead cast or with an important person from my cast or my or my crew, you know, yeah. it could be my producer or it could be my DP, right? I would stay true to whatever piece I was making before the news came out. Okay. I okay. can tell you right now, thinking, thinking it through, that I would stay true to my vision. I chose those people for some reason. And if I made a mistake, I made a mistake. But you have to stay through. You have to stick with it. Thank you. Know? you. I uh, respect you that. Can, I, don't yeah. think, I don't think you can, you can drop it. But first of all, how does it make me look? If I drop whoever is tainted for a second, and then what, what, what is going to happen next week? Maybe it's going to be like all lies and everyone's going to be, you know, uh, saying, I'm sorry, like that was wrong. Uh, you're, you're great again and all that stuff. And me being super fidgety with my own decisions, that doesn't make me look good. Yeah. Well, maybe that's, a, then? maybe that's too big of a pivot, but then how do you feel about the Oscars coming out with the quota ratio for nominations? Well, here's the deal. My, this opinion is also very unpopular, I would say, and, my, and might hurt my career even. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but the thing is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is that I am a female filmmaker, female and ethnic filmmaker. Asian, Middle Eastern, race Muslim, immigrant coming from Russia, very controversial or whatever. But the thing is that even though I check all the boxes and it's great, it might open some doors for me into 2020 and going forward. Whenever I'm in that room, the door of which was open to me because I check all the boxes from the quotas, 
I'm not sure I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm going to be constantly questioning, why am I here? Am I here because I'm a female filmmaker? Am I here because I'm a Muslim or, or former Muslim? Am I here because I'm from Russia or why am I here? Right. And the, there's almost the an thing asterisk. Is that, yes, the oldest quotas are raising these questions all the time in my head right now. And it doesn't make me feel good because what I want to be judged for and what I want to be accepted and praised for is my art and my skills. Yeah. And you, I would probably prefer for people to watch my film not knowing who I am. Because that doesn't matter. It definitely yeah. informs whatever I'm doing. Of course, that's part of me. That my identity it's definitely oozes itself. My experience oozes itself on, on the screen and in my scripts. But that's what matters. The film and the script and whatever is written or whatever I, I created a sh shot or did. Right? I'm not sure that my identity needs to needs to influence the success rate of it you but, know what i mean but do you and find that I'm, as dangerous or is it a good thing in some regard that maybe uh unheard voices could now maybe be heard is there a flip I side love to this it. i i absolutely love it and i support the 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 support of emerging filmmakers from marginalized uh, communities or people who were robbed of these opportunities or experiences just because of the color of their skin. That's an amazing improvement socially and in film art. But again, personally, checking all those marks, I always question myself even, you know, it's like, I don't want to be a female filmmaker. I want to be a filmmaker. I don't want to be boxed, basically. The people want to label you. And especially yeah. in Hollywood, everyone is constantly asking you, well, how do you feel about that? Who are you? They put, they're trying to put a label on you to give you a narrative, to basically either make you a, a story of triumph because you overcame all the adversities uh, or pity you oh poor her poor him poor them you know they didn't get the emmy or they didn't get this and that because it's all politics and nepotism and they probably hate hate them or there's people who are making decisions are probably racist right yeah so it's either this or that there's no in between there's no in-depth look at at whatever you did you know and i do think it is possibly dangerous uh going yeah. forward is that what kind of stories are we gonna tell uh, as 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 a community of all this quota filmmakers this emerging community of people who are all of a sudden giving given percentages of representation on sets and and writing rooms yeah because i find myself feeling that way as well like i mean it is nice that this is happening because maybe that is an opportunity for me to get in, you know, and mm -hmm. it kind of makes it a little easier. But then at the same time, as a creative, I just want to be equal. And I don't want to have, like Tom was saying, that asterisk by my name where it's like, oh, well, he's a minority. So that's something to reflect on. I just want to be, no, here's my work. If it's of worth, then, you know, let that credit and any criticism stand where it is based on the work itself yes i agree 100 percent. it should always be work yeah equality right we want equality yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. with that said i think we also have to acknowledge that it's not equal the way things are moving in has hasn't been equal and so sometimes we need these extreme measures to push that new direction even if they can be even if they walk the tightrope of being abused that's true that's how i feel actually about the next five years with the with oscars actually implying all the changes and stuff i feel like it's gonna be a boring five six years of stuff made for uh, to please some kind of an agenda yeah right well i'm and hoping that just the foreign films to start itself. taking over 
Because like, yeah, did, did you see? Would be great. Did you see Parasite? <laughs> yes, I did. Like Parasite was such a clear front runner for. I mean, like we did a podcast about but it. Wouldn't but wouldn't Parasite like, not meet the quota? I mean, it does because it's Koreans are underrepresented. It's pretty much. Did you read the? I quotas? don't even know what the quota the quote, is. It, it's just pretty much not. You can't have only straight white males. Oh, that's it. That's, that's it. The quota. Yeah. No straight yeah. white males. And only, oh, yes, God. and only three. <laughs> and only three things from the from the whole list should be like. Three minimum. Yeah. So it's not like everyone has to be something, right? It's just like yeah. if you have a female lead or you have a, enough female characters, you will pass that one. Or if you have uh, people of color, you will pass that one. I, I'm sure many films will, will pass the quota now. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. I think most of the films, uh, there was a thing where it was like all the, the past like eight films all passed the quota already. That have mm-hmm. more than that. So, well, then that's good too, right? Because that means that maybe the bar's not oppressive. Perhaps. Yeah. You know. I mean, yeah. it, it is for the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if that director wasn't a racist. I love that guy. <laughs> so, Aliyah, I did want to ask, what kind of genres do you find yourself gravitating towards in your? Um, Filmmaking. Well, I specialize in drama uh, with elements of thriller. Okay. That's kind of my thing. Get out of our space. That's ours. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. You know, I've done horror because horror is easy. Um, yeah. Just going to put it out there. Wait, wh- why, are you it's, why are you saying it's easy, though? Because of the genre tropes. Okay. Yes. Well, I because think also horror is the biggest genre. There, you can. There's so much you can do with it. There is so much you can do with it, but there is also a, a built-in audience that yeah. knows what to expect. Yes. And if you play by the rules, no one's going to be mad. It's not going to yeah, be a I cliche. Like you know what I mean? Yeah, so you beautiful. you know what you're getting into, and uh, you can write that. And uh, it's kind of a a creative challenge as well because horror has been done for so many times and the same thing over and over again you kind of being creative with uh, with the content actually yeah. so that's like an ultimate genre i think because it's like it has the rules but you also can kind of break them yeah i mean Absolutely. we're we made a horror film as well and it's just like when you ask why it's like one they're easily marketable Yes. They're super fun to make. I don't, I mean, literally, mm-hmm. it's just fun. Like playing with fake blood and killing people, it's really fun. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, don't hang out with Tom alone uh, is, <laughs> is the warning there. <laughs> oh, no, I'm dangerous. <laughs> oh, ah! Maybe it's the whiskey talking, but yeah. Um, so, I guess what I wanted to say is like living in uh, New York, which is a pretty much like a cultural hub for filmmaking, do you have you met and run into anyone uh, in the industry? Like, do you have, have you made started making those connections? Well, you mean someone famous? Or oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like what every, every uh, little, you know, kid wants to know. Like, how many famous people have you met? Do you hang out <laughs> with Steven Spielberg? <laughs> I wish. When I come to LA, maybe. But I'm one handshake away, which like I was maybe wow. three handshakes away from him last year. But now I'm one handshake away. I'm like but a thousand. The- <laughs> we're 10,000 no. actually <laughs> maybe 10,000 maybe how many harder, Americans maybe. are there 300 million <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean like you kind of put me on the spot now I never thought about it this way like how many celebrities or whatever I always I have a thing for DPs for cinematographers oh, okay. yeah. and that one you know I have a fucking roster of the, <laughs> the greatest the most the hottest the most emerging variety of uh, cinematographers to watch I'm friends with those people because they inspire me and actually when uh, we speak and we meet it's just like a never ending conversation it's just like with you guys right now because you just like hit it off. You 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 discuss films and you discuss the state of the industry, of course, and stuff. And yeah. the moment you kind of align your visual sensibilities with these people, you became very close friends. So yeah. 
uh, I would say, like, I'm in the circle of all this uh, visual uh, filmmakers of cinematographers. I don't know. I don't hang out with a, a lot of directors, even though I'm, like, friends with a, with a couple big music video directors and commercial ones. But not so much um, the filmmakers, because uh, I'm a union script supervisor. So I am on big sets and big commercials, primarily. That's how I meet all those people, right? Yeah. All right, so who so, are some of your favorite DPs uh, bringing that up? I mean... Favorite DP? Oh, I don't want to... Or at least some of your favorite uh, friends. You can tell us, like, who, <laughs> who do you like more than the others, you know? Wow. <laughs> I, Not to put you I on the spot. Rate, I'm, I'm kidding. I can totally avoid this question if I we want to. I don't want to rate my friends right now. But the thing is that, like, and I can tell you, like, working with Pete Consal who shot uh, House of Cards. Uh, right now, Fargo just came out uh, the other day. Oh, yeah. Um, and Eddie many Murphy other guy. projects. Yes. You mean Chris Rock? That was uh, such a treat. Oh, yeah, sorry. You know, I, I co-directed the atmosphere scenes for this documentary that Pete shot, and oh, wow. it was such a great collaboration and experience working with him and James being by his side and kind of... Uh, setting up the shots and stuff you know it was great and um recently I, i've just met for some reason i'm going through fincher uh cinematographers at the moment oh, so i met the best of the best <laughs> I know, <right? laughs> you weren't kidding <laughs> i i just met on set igor martinovich uh who shot the oscar winning man on the wire documentary by Errol morris oh, wow. and the house of cards as well as as uh, the night off, which for me was the the best TV show uh, lately that I have seen, and uh, I'm just a fan of his work. And it happened so that we ended up on this commercial together and started talking and never stopped. Yeah. You know, because it's just like sometimes, and I didn't even know that I'm gonna meet him and that he is the one who made the night off. But when we were sitting at lunch and he and just discussing like our latest projects and stuff, and he was so humble and it's just always charming when when uh, people of this caliber are just being like, yeah, I made a little movie or <laughs> just something. So, and he said that he DP'd the night off. And I was like, oh my God, I got to talk to you now. <laughs> you <laughs> That's know? so awesome though. Like, yeah, yeah, I just... Yeah, there's just a thing when you meet other creatives, right? And then you just love their work. I mean, maybe it's awkward because you're like trying not to completely like fan out, but yeah, like mm -hmm. gush over them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like every No, no, and and usually I find that the bigger the person is, the more humble they are. Oh, Especially okay. with cinematographers. I just recently worked with David Devlin Oh, who wow. shot uh, Saving Pride Ryan and uh, Indiana Jones. And uh, that's my one handshake from Spielberg, actually. And <laughs> the moment he walked in, we were riding a van together. And uh, he was like, I don't know how about you guys. And there was like two, uh, three, three of us in the van for, for safety reasons. And he was talking about the Zoom calls that he have to be on, uh, that he has to be on uh, lately. And he's like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a cameraman. I don't know if I need to be on those Zoom calls. <laughs> and, and it's like, and this guy is sitting in, in like in his hat in a hoodie saying, you know, I don't know, I'm a cameraman. <laughs> That's priceless. Yeah. That's yeah. why I'm in this industry, I think. And I'm here for a long time because of the people, because of the people who make this industry great. And who stay humble and just hardworking. And these are the people who are the foundation of it. Yeah. You know, yeah, you absolutely. cannot take it away. So, yeah. with that said, since you have so much experience on set, I mean, we can't start getting into that, but who would you say are some of the underrepresented positions on set? Because, I mean, you know, there's all your above the line people who get all the credit, but who are some of the unsung heroes that? we wouldn't think of? Hmm. It's a good question. I would say the gaffer. Yeah, definitely. Huh? Gaffer needs to get uh, more credit for what they do because it's such a creative job. And oh, some of my most favorite 
DPs, uh, former gaffers, and never camera up and never ACs. Like a lot of people think that if you want to be a DP, you got to be a focus puller, but that's not true. If you want to be a good DP, you want to know how to how to light a scene. How to light. So it's it's I would say it's the gaffer and the common folk doesn't know what it what it even is. You know, the yeah. lighting cameraman or something like that, maybe. And um, I would say, I mean, production wise, you are nothing without a UPM, unit production manager, the person who has nothing to do with creative work, <laughs> but but makes it all run. Yeah, yeah all administration. Um, that yeah. was one thing that we were running into when we made our film. It's just like, Jesus, there's so much ad- admin, admin work to do with like, mm-hmm. the filmmaking. It's, it, yeah. there's, it's really like daunting, honestly. Yeah. Well, for sure. Or even like a line producer. I mean, because we didn't have yeah, that, we were hemorrhaging yeah. a lot of money that we didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So can I ask you something real quick, uh, going back to sure. the gaffer and the DP? So on your experience on sets, how many DPs are directing the gaffer versus how many are kind of just have letting the gaffer do their own thing and then the dp works with that you know what i'm saying like how how involved is the dp with the gaff side <laughs> well it varies from set to set so much you can't even imagine okay. usually on independent sets, uh, the DP will, will will bring their own gaffer. And on bigger sets as well. Uh, it's not the rule. But um, when they're bringing that gaffer to set, they have some kind of relationship with the person outside the set. They either work together or, re, uh, or they came highly recommended or something like that. They kind of, fi- it's like a very interesting dynamic to watch. They kind of figure it out for themselves and depends how much the cinematographer wants to be involved overall. You know, like okay. you see this yeah. this DPs like who I personally do not like and try to avoid who claim themselves to be a Swiss army knife. Uh-huh. And for some reason, they are very proud of it. Like, oh, whatever my director wants, I'm going to do. As a director, that's a big minus for me because I want my DP to come on and bring their vision as well. I yeah. want them to speak up and then kind of like add to it because like why was like if if you're a Swiss Army knife, why can't I just put a camera and, and run with a camera? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's definitely a very personal thing for for the DPs, what I'm seeing more lately is that, first of all, they bring their own people that they worked together before. Uh, so they have this kind of understanding and trust, which is very important. And uh, usually on commercial sets, the DP would tell the gaffer what they're thinking and the gaffer would just set it up with Genie. And that's it. And then the DP just walks in and, and tweaks. Uh, on, on independent shoots, uh, again, DPs are are more hands-on and uh, they might be just like coming out right now. It might be second, third project for them. So they're more insecure, which means that they will be more involved or try to be more involved with every aspect. So there will be a lot of kind of, uh, supervising of the gaffer and their electric team. And, uh, sometimes just the... The DP would be more laid back and let them light because they prepped rigorously. It's a easy location or one location shoot. And they did all the job and prep and they don't even speak on set because they know what to do and nothing changed and everything goes by the schedule. Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're getting close to four hours here, so we should probably start mm-hmm. racking it up. Yeah. So, um Let's get to the end game here. Uh, I did want to ask you something that I skipped over, and maybe this will go a bit off a tangent. But so you've been doing these films like within the scope of the union and paying everyone and making everything like kosher, essentially. Mm -hmm. What is your feelings on guerrilla shooting? I'm all for it in the sense that the person who's actually guerrilla shooting knows what they're doing because they're breaking the rules, right? 
So unless you know what rules are you breaking or what you're doing, it can go so wrong. Like I and I and I I'm meaning like all those shoots with real guns or fake guns and cops arresting the the kids who are shooting on the block with pulling out toy guns and all like shooting without a permit in a public place and yeah. uh, this kind of putting people's safety in question, you know, those kind of things. If you know that you're going to break those rules, you're going to know the rules, right? And how serious it is. That's the only thing I would bring up if I talk about guerrilla filmmaking. Uh, I'm definitely not opposed to that. I think it's a very creative, creatively challenging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've definitely been on, on sets when, when uh, for this uh, big uh, Showtime pilot uh, or, or for ambitious of selling it to Showtime. Uh, we went to a Plaza Hotel and completely shot it all in secret. And wow. uh, the doorman figured oh, it God, out I love in the that. third take. Yeah, I love that. I <laughs> you love know, that. It's so much fun. Yeah, I It's love a that. lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, but you got to have the crew that you trust and, you know, like that you go through a lot of stuff. Yeah. stuff. Uh, so my main concern is only the safety. And everything else, I mean, we are kind of doing the guerrilla thing in a way that, you know, shoot where you have, what you have access to, shoot your friends, ask you, ask for favors all the time. I ask for a lot of favors too, you know, with equipment, with rentals and stuff. Uh, a lot of people are chipped in in that way. So I'm for it. You know, I think it's super creative, especially when you just like take your phone. Or take your camera, the red that you bought. I mean, you got you got. We a good can't camera. take that red just out. I mean, if they see the red <laughs> out, they're gonna uh, call the police immediately. So, oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah, that the camera it's alone weighs like fifty five pounds, and that's not even it fully oh, rigged up. But um, I see. Would you consider doing guerrilla filmmaking in your projects, or is that something you just don't want to touch on? You'd rather just do it all completely, getting the permits, getting the, getting all of that squared away. Well, not for a narrative, I think, because uh, the, 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 the guerrilla shoots are not sustainable on, in the long run, I don't think. You know, you cannot yeah. shoot a feature film for continuity the guerrilla wise, right? way. For continuity, for for the sake of the mood and the tone and the stress of the whole crew and stuff, you know, because there is a lot of stress under it, right? So, uh, but I would definitely, and I'm pitching a couple of music artists right now for the the videos and stuff and for like dancing pieces. I would just go get uh, a friend of DP who really wants to work with me and I have like a line of them at the moment. So I'm just picking whoever (laughs) has like the most, uh, suitable uh, equipment. Oh my god! You just have the best of all the worlds, don't you? Yeah, you just got to rub yeah. it. In, uh, how great you got it! <laughs> Sounds awesome. So I would just definitely, I would definitely ask my dancer friends yeah. just to dance in free in, on the waterfront and shoot yeah. it with the like I don't know, with my steady cam friend, just on yeah. one day. And I don't need permits for that. I definitely don't need permits for that. The only, the, the one thing about independent filmmaking that New York Tough teaches you is that you don't need a permit to shoot in the public place. That's a myth. If you don't put the camera on the sticks and you have it on handheld or on the steady, you're free to do whatever you want. And the moment you realize that as a producer as a, or just as a filmmaker who is confident, even if the cop approaches you, just be nice and... You know, show them that you know that you're not doing anything Absolutely. wrong. Absolutely. Or just tell yeah, them you're a, a student, lot of myths. right? Yeah, or just tell them you're a student and you're going to get out of here and stuff, you know. Just yeah. like, there's a lot of myths around it. And so sometimes you just have to, like, be confident and know your shit. Awesome. Well, I don't know how it is in uh, New York, but I know in L.A. there's a lot of um, regulations to prevent guerrilla shooting because... I mean, in in Los Angeles, at the most extreme, I think it is they can still they can take they can confiscate your entire equipment. Mm, you know? I didn't know that. Yeah, and and supposedly they have like a secret police funded by the studios to prevent pr- uh, oh, independent production from going more, on. That sounds like a myth, more to no, me. This is what I've heard. I have no idea. I mean, where we're at, we don't ever have to worry about anyone busting yeah. us, but. You know, we, we do get scared um, going closer to L.A. So um, Interesting. I, I could talk to you forever. Yes. I'm just learning so much. I, I 
we didn't even get into riding, and that's what I really yeah. But get I knew I. We can yeah, do a separate say, podcast. I, there was two. There's, yeah, well, we're, we're there are two to, things I really want to get into with you is writing, and then like the use of social media for your content and yeah. and developing a community mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But like I know that's gonna go another four hours. Yeah. So, and, and for me yeah. personally, just talking about poetry. I mean, I could do that all day. <laughs> but to uh, close this up, are there any um, tips or tricks you want to give to the listeners? And our listeners are probably like. Tom and I where we're not in the industry whatsoever and we're just looking in from the window, you know, we're, we're looking in through that looking glass. What would you advise us? I would say keep looking and uh, do not discourage yourself because you're usually your, your own worst critic. If you're really serious about this path and about this career, you have to be proactive and get on set. And while you're learning something from the internet or from the podcast like this or from the books or from the friends or just like stalking favorite filmmakers and writers and and artists, be on set in a position that teaches you something or exposes you to people who can mentor you in the future. Show up, do the job, and try to be friends with other people. And that is the community that will hold you through your your career going forward. And um, just don't be afraid to be on set because that's how you learn. Awesome. And with that, right. thanks awesome. for everyone for listening to Twin Shadows Podcast. Thank you, Aaliyah, for coming on to our show. Wait, Aaliyah? There is yes. one thing I want to ask and in a, a way to close this out. Would you mm-hmm. give us a poetry reading to send us off? Oh, really? Yeah. In, in Russian? Do yes. you want it in yes. Russian? Russian? I want I it want, in Russian. I want one of your poems, whatever you want. Oh, Let my it be Russian, God. whatever. Definitely in Russian. No, talking about putting someone on the spot. <laughs> well, you are a poet, I, so I got to imagine you have some poems a form, on a you. Former, a former poet. I don't write anymore, you know. You don't I write got, any poetry anymore. I, no, I got happy, you know. You need to be <laughs> miserable, honey, right? That's, you know, that's pretty great. <laughs> Let me find but some. it's COVID. It's 2020. Come on, there's got to be some unhappy <laughs> moments. <laughs> Wait a second. Oh, um, God, yeah, that's good. How do I find this? My God. Don't worry. And we- I don't like all of the all of the poems that I have are like super intense. And that's I perfect. would like to, to end on like a good note. But wait a second. I'll find you a good one. You know what? Sometimes life um, isn't always good. So yes. that's sometimes you got to give in to the intensity. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a lot of time, so don't worry. I mean, there's the editing process. We can make it look like you already had this poem <laughs> figured out. Yeah, well, no, no, not at all. You should not have it like I prompted because that would be cheesy. That's true. Oh, um, well, we're very cheesy. I don't know if you listen to this podcast at all, but... Uh, let's see. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to do a good one. The one that actually uh, got a lot of uh, likes and views and stuff when I did it. That I was telling myself. It's about in April and... Uh, <laughs> Should I do the Vysotsky? I don't know. My husband just coming up and he's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> uh, Russian poetry? What is this? I'm I'm so excited for this. I just got to say. Well, you know what? Since it's like in Russian, maybe I should do maybe I should do more like a rhythmical one. Yeah, that might be a little easier to uh vibe yes, with. Yes, to understand. Yeah. Cuz we won't okay, we don't let's know the do language. That. Yes. Yes, exactly. Let's do the one that really represents okay. me. Let's go. Доброе утро. Холодный город награждает болезнью легочной. Минус 10 удобный повод заблудиться в бассейне облачной. Швы проспектов шипами в спороты рос резиновых, будто лезвием. Город нескончаемо короток, люди в нем до да похмелья трезвые. 
Бродит тенью безумный холод В лабиринтах офисных комнат Каждый третий здесь очень молод Каждый пятый почти что в коме Как виски пульсируют пробочно Магистрали на теле Урбана В модном кофе осадок горечи Раздражает, как снег неубранный Расстояние в пропасть сорваны Порван времени тонкий трос И зигзагом полосы Зломанная улица, словно веревочный мост Доброе утро, холодный город, мокрым ветром лезет за ворот тем, кто жив и тому, кто молод. Этот город до боли дорог. That's it. God damn. I could see why you had, I could see why you toured. I don't know what you said. Thank you so much. I don't know what you said, but that was beautiful. Cut. Cut. Cut.